Hello, Campus Cronies, and welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. 11 days after the shootings at Kent State University by the Ohio National Guard, Jackson State College, which is now Jackson State University, in Jackson, Mississippi, faced a similar tragedy where two young people were killed by Jackson police officers and Mississippi State troopers. The two campus shootings by America's own were so close together in time and circumstances appeared so similar, at least in the public eye, that is, that the headline of an editorial piece written for the Indiana Daily Student literally crossed out the words Kent State and replaced them with Jackson State. And an article in Time Magazine referred to the shootings at Jackson State as Kent State the Second. But, you see, even though these two events seem strikingly similar on the surface, the driving forces and underlying reasoning of the two tragedies were very, very different. This episode is titled, Never Forgotten, The Jackson State Shootings. So without further ado, let's get started. May 14th, 1970, appeared to be just another day on the campus of Jackson State College for many students. That night, curfew was quickly approaching for female students at 11.30 p.m., so Leroy Kinter had just dropped off his girlfriend at her dormitory in Alexander Hall, ensuring she was home in time for curfew. But Leroy stayed on campus, chatting with some friends outside of the West Wing entrance to the all-female dorm. Meanwhile, Philip Gibbs was talking to his sister, Mary, and her roommate through their window in Alexander Hall. Overall, students were just hanging out, relaxing, and doing what college students do best, socializing. They were excited about the end of the semester, and seniors were anticipating their upcoming graduation and a chance to join the American workforce. Vernon Steve Weekly, a student at Jackson State at the time, told Time Magazine, quote, That night was a quiet night. Kids were outside having a good time. Music was blasting, end quote. Vernon also pointed out that, of course, Alexander Hall was a popular place to hang out for a lot of students because, hello, that's where all the girls were. (laughs) But the other side of campus that same night was not so relaxed and quiet. That's because the night before, on May 13, 1970, Jackson police had cordoned off John R. Lynch Street, better known as simply Lynch Street, which is a busy road that ran through the center of campus. Now, I'll come back around to exactly why the street was closed off on this night particularly, but first, I need to give you a little more background to help with the context of the story. 
Jackson State is a historically black institution, an HBCU, located in the black community just west of downtown Jackson. It was founded in 1877 to serve those recently freed from slavery, and according to Nancy K. Bristow's piece in Time magazine, Jackson State, from its very birth, always struggled against white supremacists seeking to limit African American access to higher education. As a result of that concept then, Lynch Street on campus had been a place, or really a source, of tension for years. Apparently, white commuters who were clearly not students attending Jackson State would speed through campus down Lynch Street for the fun of it, not only taunting black students with racial epithets, but also literally endangering their lives. The motorists would often throw objects at the students as they were driving by. One student who went to Jackson State during this time, Gayla Porter, said, quote, Many of the white motorists would say obscenities to the female students. They would sometimes use the N-word as they're traveling through campus at a fast speed, and sometimes they would even throw objects out of the window, end quote. Sometimes the motorists would even threaten to hit pedestrians, until one time that threat turned into reality. On February 3, 1964, a white driver slammed into Jackson State student Mamie Ballard, which sent her to the hospital. Though Mamie did survive, that hateful, reckless act began a years-long push by Jackson State students to close Lynch Street permanently to through traffic. So, let's put all of this into perspective and consider the complexity of the political climate at the time, particularly how it affected students at Jackson State. Not only were they just as affected by the Vietnam War as other college students and their white counterparts, I mean, they too were seeing their family and friends and peers be drafted, but it was also not too far removed from the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, meaning they were still on the cusp of the after effects of literally fighting against systemic racism, a fight that didn't stop just because the law had officially changed. In fact, Nancy K. Bristow points out in her piece in Time magazine that while white college students had issues with President Nixon because of the Vietnam War, black college students had even more issues with him because of his ever-so-slight discriminatory undertones in his campaign rhetoric. For example, Nixon's presidential advisor at the time, John Ehrlichman, wrote in his diary, quote, The subliminal appeal to the anti-black voter was always present in Nixon's statements and speeches, end quote. So, by 1970, the outcome of this rhetoric became clear to Jackson State students, and they began expressing their views and their voices, and racial consciousness was more openly expressed on campus than ever before. Now, that brings us back to the night of May 13, 1970, when police had closed Lynch Street on Jackson State's campus. The reason they had closed it is because a group of young people were standing on the side of the street throwing rocks at passing motorists as a form of protest. That night, city and state law enforcement considered moving in on the campus to help control the protesting, and they even called in the Mississippi National Guard to stand by on backup, just in case. But the mayor of Jackson at the time held law enforcement back, which ultimately de-escalated the situation that night. The next morning, on May 14th, the campus appeared calm and quiet, and students went about their days as normal. They went to classes and continued preparing for the upcoming final exams. Though the campus was calm, the president of Jackson State, John A. Peoples Jr., asked city officials to close Lynch Street again for the day just as a precautionary move, especially considering the unrest of recent events across college campuses in general, you know, such as what happened at Kent State. 
But the city rejected the Jackson State president's request and Lynch Street remained open. So as we all know by now, every decision has some sort of consequence and the decision to keep the street open was no different. That evening, once again, young people began throwing rocks at motorists as they were driving through campus. I say young people rather than college students because to this day, there is still some disagreement as to who exactly started the unrest that night. Some people believe it was some local youth who students at Jackson State and the community referred to as corner boys. Others blamed only Jackson State students and say they wanted to draw attention to their concerns over political issues, including the war and the draft, and student rights and racial equality. And still, others suggest it was the result of a devastating rumor that began making its way around town. A rumor that prominent activist and mayor of nearby Fayette, Mississippi, Charles Evers, and his wife were murdered, which was just a rumor and not true. Though the cause of the unrest and protest that night was uncertain, the renewed unrest on campus caused the city of Jackson to once again close Lynch Street. That same night, at about 9.30 p.m., a group of young people stole a dump truck from a neighboring construction site, drove it onto Lynch Street in the middle of campus, and set it on fire. A piece written by Whitney Blair Wyckoff for NPR notes that the dump truck was set on fire by non-Jackson State students, so they did not attend Jackson State. Naturally, though, local firefighters responded to the scene to extinguish the blaze, and when they arrived on campus, they were accompanied by both the Mississippi Highway and Safety Patrol, or MHSP, and Jackson City Police. Time Magazine notes that law enforcement were only there as a precautionary concern and to protect the firefighters as they were putting out the fire. The Mississippi National Guard was also called to campus, but only because they were still in Jackson from the previous day. The guard was set up on the west end of Lynch Street on standby, equipped with weapons, but it is important to note that they had no ammunition. But, y'all, this is where the story goes from zero to 60. So buckle up, pull over, whatever you need to do, but brace yourself because it's sure to make you incredibly frustrated and angry. So, as you can probably imagine, the presence of law enforcement only angered the crowd more, especially because law enforcement brought the city's armored tank to campus that night, and they all carried weapons that were better suited for a military operation than crowd control. Highway patrolmen carried state-issued shotguns and double-aught buckshot, while other officers carried their personal weapons. Y'all, they even brought two submachine guns to campus with them as well. According to NPR, when law enforcement showed up to campus like that, a group of angry people in the crowd, a mix of students and non-students, responded by throwing rocks and a brick at the officers. After the fire was extinguished, though, and nobody was actually harmed, instead of leaving campus like the firefighters did because, hello, their job was technically done, law enforcement deliberately disobeyed their orders from headquarters and inexplicably turned around and began marching up Lynch Street further into the campus. According to court testimony, at least 69 heavily armed officers marched toward Alexander Hall, weapons and riot gear in tow, where somewhere between 100 and 200 innocent students were simply hanging out, enjoying their night on campus. Mind you, these students were nowhere near where the dump truck had been set ablaze or where the campus unrest and rioting had taken place. 
Shortly before midnight, MHSP officers and city policemen continued marching for several blocks through campus. So it wasn't like just right there, like they marched for blocks until they came to the front of Alexander Hall. When they arrived, all of the officers turned to face the dorm and the students who were in and around it. They then aimed their weapons directly toward the building and the students as if they were ready to fire at any moment on command. Then, when a bottle hit the pavement nearby, reports say that 38 highway patrolmen and five Jackson police officers opened fire at 12.05 a.m. on May 15, 1970. For at least 28 whole seconds, nearly half a minute, they unleashed a bombardment of gunfire, which ultimately killed two people and injured 12 others. A former Jackson State student who witnessed the events unfold, James Lapp Baker, told NPR, quote, This highway patrolman stepped out with a bullhorn and he said, May I have your attention, please? And by that time, a bottle was thrown and it burst. When that bottle burst, that's when all hell broke loose, all the shooting. All we saw was fire going over our heads and hearing students holler, Oh, 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 oh. 29 to 30 seconds of shooting on both sides of the campus, not just over here, end quote. But here's the thing. Law enforcement, immediately after the shooting, had no idea just how many students were hurt, injured, or dead, and they didn't appear to care either because they failed to offer any aid at all to the wounded or dead who lay there in the aftermath. Instead, policemen and state troopers turned around to pick up their spent shell casings as Jackson State students quickly began helping their peers who were wounded and bleeding. By the time the shooting was over, law enforcement had sprayed the dorm with over 150 rounds of ammunition, scarring the sides of Alexander Hall with more than 400 bullet holes or buckshot marks, and every single window on the narrow side of the building that faced Lynch Street was shattered. By the time the shooting was over, law enforcement had sprayed the dorm with over 150 rounds of ammunition, scarring the sides of Alexander Hall with more than 400 bullet holes or buckshot marks, and every single window on the narrow side of the building that faced Lynch Street was completely shattered. There is a picture of the building that I posted to my social media, and it is shocking to say the least, so definitely go check that out. It gives you a better picture of just how many bullet holes there were in those windows and the building. The Jackson State University website describes what the scene was like while bullets were flying through the air. According to the website, quote, students scattered, some running for the trees in front of the library, but most scrambling for the doors of Alexander Hall West. A few students were trampled. Others, wounded, were dragged inside or left moaning in the grass, end quote. Meanwhile, Inspector Lloyd Goon Jones, the on-site commander for MHSP, ordered some uninjured students at gunpoint, whilst using some quite derogatory language toward those students, to check on people who appeared mortally wounded. According to recorded communications and eyewitness accounts, when Jones finally did contact headquarters, he simply noted that several were injured, and when he was asked to provide more details, he said, quote, they're inward students, end quote. Then he turned around to count the number of, quote, inward gals and inward males, end quote, who had been wounded. Jones also dismissed the severity of the situation and said, quote, they ain't hurt all that bad, end quote. 
Now, he did turn the conversation briefly to the two fatal shootings before moving on to a concocted story about his men reacting to a sniper, while also throwing in a request for some much-needed coffee and cigarettes at the scene. (sighs) Am I the only one thinking what in the literal fuck right now? Anyway, remember me telling you about Philip Gibbs, who was visiting with his sister and her roommate from their window? You know, he was standing outside while they were standing inside the dorm. Well, he was one of the two people who were killed as a result of the gunfire. Philip Lafayette Gibbs was a 21-year-old pre-law major. He was married to his high school sweetheart, and he was the father of an 18-month-old baby boy. And, although he and his wife didn't know it at the time, they were also expecting another son on the way. Gibbs had been shot at least four times, and he lay dead about 50 feet away from the east entrance of the dorm. The other person killed that night was 17-year-old James Earl Green, a senior at Jim Hill High School who was just days away from graduating high school. So, that means Green wasn't even a Jackson State student at all. Rather, he was an innocent bystander who just happened to be walking home that night after working a shift at a local grocery store. According to the Jackson State website, Green had decided to walk through campus on his way home, and he had stopped to watch the events unfold. But Green was doing just that, just simply watching from afar. He wasn't standing near or in front of Alexander Hall. Instead, he was standing across the street in the other direction of the gunfire near the B.F. Roberts Dining Hall. But, somehow, he had been shot once in his chest. Oh, and if you think law enforcement even bothered telling Green's family that a 17-year-old child had been shot, you'd be wrong. Green's older sister, Maddie Hole, told Mississippi Public Broadcasting that another one of their brothers, Samuel, walked to campus several times that night to look for Green when he never came home after work. Hole said, quote, Whoever did the shooting never came and told us that child had been killed. Never told the family. End quote. So let's move on to that story about the so-called sniper. According to NBC News, officers later falsely claimed that they had seen a sniper in a window of Alexander Hall, but there was no evidence of a sniper ever discovered. If there was a sniper in Alexander Hall, as law enforcement had claimed, then why the hell were they firing in the other direction, toward the dining hall, where James Green was shot and killed, you know, instead of just in the direction of Alexander Hall? Actually, at the time of the shooting, according to Nancy K. Bristow's piece in Time magazine, all students who had been protesting had retreated from Lynch Street and were separated from law enforcement by a chain link fence. As a matter of fact, the officer's actions that night actually violated protocol completely. Even General Walter Johnson with the Mississippi National Guard, who was waiting with his men on the edge of campus to relieve law enforcement, if need be, again, keywords, if need be. Anyway, General Johnson looked toward Alexander Hall as he witnessed officers march down Lynch Street and open fire. And General Johnson said, quote, Oh my God, they've done it all wrong, end quote. And yes, all wrong it was. I mean, first of all, these were heavily armed officers who were quite literally attacking and ultimately killing unarmed students. So a lot of people can't help but speculate that it was a premeditated, planned attack, which appeared to be driven by bigotry and blatant racism. James Baker, the former Jackson State student whom I mentioned earlier, has no doubt that the whole thing was planned in advance. 
Actually, Baker referred to it as a planned massacre. He told Mississippi Public Broadcasting, quote, The city policeman and highway patrol said there was a sniper. If there was a sniper, which there wasn't, on the third, fifth, fourth floor of Alexander Hall, why are they shooting on the opposite side of campus as well? End quote. Also, it seems as though law enforcement was preparing for the bloodshed that night because, as I mentioned before, Jackson police entered campus with an armored tank, which just happened to garner the infamous nickname of the Thompson Tank after it was purchased in 1964 by segregationist mayor of Jackson, Alan Thompson. And according to an opinion piece in the New York Times by Dr. Robert Luckett, a history professor at Jackson State, Mississippi legislature in 1964 gave state highway patrol authority to intervene in any type of protests in the state, even if local authorities had not requested their presence. That legislature was still in full force by May 1970. And guess who showed up to campus that night? Yes, we've already established the fact that MHSP was there, But according to an article by Mississippi Public Broadcasting, there were actually more highway patrol officers there that night than Jackson City police officers. And it's critical to point out that at the time, the MHSP was an all-white force and there were only a handful of black patrolmen employed by the city of Jackson. Regardless, survivors and former Jackson State students remember vividly the horror that unfolded during the night of May 14th and the early morning hours of May 15th, 1970. Let's first go back to James Baker, who I've already mentioned a couple times. Baker was a graduating senior majoring in geography, and he lived in a nearby apartment off campus at the time. That night, he and his friends walked to campus and stood on the opposite side of the street facing Alexander Hall, very near to where James Earl Green ended up getting shot by the dining hall. Baker said he remembers seeing at least 100 students hanging out at the dorm, either on the grass in the front lawn outside or through the windows before officers opened fire. Luckily, Baker escaped the shootings with no injuries, but that didn't change the fact that he was scared out of his mind. He said he had to crawl through the grass after the shooting stopped so he could return unharmed to his off-campus apartment. Another student, Gayla Porter, was a sophomore sociology major at Jackson State, and she lived in Alexander Hall when the shootings occurred. She told Mississippi Public Broadcasting that she remembers rolling her hair in soup cans before going to bed on the night of the 14th. Then, when talk began swirling around the dorm of the unrest that was happening on campus, you know, the dump truck on fire a few blocks down the street, Porter and her roommate decided to peek outside to see what all the fuss was about. She said, quote, I hadn't done anything. I was just stepping out of my dormitory. Someone in the hall yelled, the corner boys are burning a vehicle down the street. My roommate said to me, well, let's just see what's going on. So we did, end quote. It is no doubt, though, that Porter and her roommate probably regretted that decision when they realized exactly what was happening. Gayla Porter suffered injuries from glass, concrete, and other flying debris, and her roommate, who luckily survived, was shot in the arm. Also, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you this, but another former student, Clarence Johnson, was on campus that night, but he ended up walking home off campus shortly before law enforcement arrived. As he was walking, though, he witnessed ambulances making their way toward campus, but there was something super strange about what he saw. First of all, why were they headed toward campus if no shootings had occurred yet? Could that be another hint that the whole thing was premeditated? 
because Johnson told Mississippi Public Broadcasting something that he remembers that he just can't shake off. He said, quote, I remember seeing ambulances without their sirens and lights on just coming quietly towards this direction. I thought that was very odd at night, end quote. But perhaps one of the most heartbreaking memories is from John A. Peoples, the president of Jackson State from 1967 to 1984. Peoples told NBC News that he remembers the sickening smell of blood streaming down the stairway of Alexander Hall after the shootings had ended. He said, quote, we sat on that lawn the rest of the night singing freedom songs, end quote. You see, the days and weeks following the shooting left big decisions for the president and the rest of the Jackson State administration. Ultimately, they decided it was best to close campus, to cancel the upcoming commencement, and to mail graduating seniors their degrees. In May of 2020, 50 years after the tragic event, those graduating seniors from 1970 were supposed to finally get the chance to walk the stage and formally receive their degrees. But, well, we all know how the spring of 2020 turned out. So, finally, in 2021, 51 years later, 74 of the 400-plus graduates from the class of 1970 did get to finally don their caps and gowns, and they finally received the recognition that was denied to them all those years ago. At the 2021 graduation ceremony at Jackson State University, State Senator Hillman Frazier spoke to those in attendance, and he told his story. Frazier, too, was a student at Jackson State in 1970. That night, though, Frazier had gone to dinner and he was delayed in returning to campus. But he firmly believes that he could have very well been standing near his good friend, Philip Gibbs, during the gunfire if it weren't for the dinner delay. He, too, could have been shot that night and not lived to tell his story. Instead, though, at the graduation ceremony, he offered a heartfelt apology for the shootings that did happen in 1970. He said, quote, the state of Mississippi never apologized for the tragedy that occurred on this campus that night. Never apologized. So, since I'm here representing the state of Mississippi in my role as state senator, I'd like to issue an apology to the families, the Jackson State family, for the tragedy that occurred that night because they took very valuable lives. End quote. Also at the 2021 Jackson State graduation ceremony, both Philip Gibbs and James Earl Green were awarded posthumous honorary degrees, which were accepted by their sisters. Now, let's rewind back to 1970 for a minute. Despite the fact that the President's Commission on Campus Unrest found that the shootings at Jackson State were, quote, an unreasonable, unjustified overreaction, end quote, and despite the fact that the commission also recognized that racial antagonisms were central to the events, not one person was found guilty in a court of law or held responsible for the hateful, senseless act. Time magazine reported that not one, but two grand juries, one county and one federal, failed to indict any members of law enforcement for unjustly opening fire. Now, in 1970, some of the wounded students and families of the two young men who were killed did file a $13.8 million civil lawsuit against law enforcement and state officials. According to the reporting of Desiree Frazier for Mississippi Public Broadcasting, the case went to trial in February of 1972, but an all-white male jury offered up a not guilty verdict. Immediately after that verdict, officers in the courtroom erupted in cheers. 
Oh, and side note, according to an article by Nancy K. Bristow in The Nation, a weekly news magazine, the judge who presided over the civil trial, William Harold Cox, was a white conservative who had previously called African Americans the N-word and chimpanzees from the bench. So yeah, I'll just let that sit with you for a minute. It has now been 52 years since Jackson Police and Mississippi Highway Patrol opened fire on the campus of Jackson State, killing two and wounding 12 innocent people. You may have heard about Kent State prior to my coverage, but had you heard about Jackson State at all? If you haven't, that's likely because the tragedy at the historically black college and university was incredibly overshadowed by the tragedy at a historically white institution. Just another example that proves how systemic racism is literally embedded in nearly every part of American systems, society, and culture. Plus, even the media coverage of the two events was framed from two completely different angles. Media over the Kent State shootings focused on the heinous act by the Ohio National Guard, who lost control and overreacted to students who were simply exercising their First Amendment rights and expressing their political beliefs. But the media coverage of Jackson State, well, it was told from a white conservative standpoint, blaming the shootings on the students and telling false stories that frame the students as dangerously criminal. Oh, and white supremacists at the time? Yeah, they described the events as anarchy and insurrection, a threat to the rights, lives, and property of others. And y'all, many white supremacists even applauded Mississippi law enforcement and their actions, almost considering them heroes for what they did, which literally makes me sick to my stomach. Anyway, despite how the truth of the Jackson State shootings has been twisted and manipulated over the years, or even overshadowed and forgotten completely, Jackson State University today embraces the truth as part of its adverse history and uses it as a teaching tool to educate students about the legacy of the university. Still, to this day, you can see the bullet holes in Alexander Hall, which is still used as a women's dorm on campus. According to NPR, all Jackson State students are educated about the historical tragedy in a mandatory orientation class, and professors often incorporate the event into their own classes. C. Lee McInnes, a professor at Jackson State who teaches creative writing and world literature, told NPR that the shooting is integrated into the curriculum of several liberal arts departments. In his freshman composition class, for example, students are required to visit the women's dorm and look at the bullet holes. Afterward, they are required to write a critical analysis paper about the historical shooting. Professor McGinnis explained that the event is significant because it shows just how much the university has overcome. He said, quote, What the shooting did is that it showed, even through this heinous act, black intellect could not be stopped. End quote. Today, on the campus of Jackson State University, the once busy Lynch Street that was a source of racial tension for so long is now closed to traffic. In fact, it's not a street on campus anymore at all. Instead, in its place is a beautiful pedestrian walkway, the Gibbs Green Memorial Plaza, which is now a popular gathering place for Jackson State students and the site of many activities on campus, including Jackson State University's annual commencement ceremonies. And that, my friends, officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 32. As always, be sure to check out this podcast on social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook.
You can also reach me by email at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com. And (laughs) I know I've said this before in the last few episodes, but I officially have a TikTok. Uh, I'm not great at posting content, though, (laughs) as in my old ass is kind of a turtle when it comes to posting videos. But regardless, I do have some content up and a lot includes some campus crime stories that you have likely never heard before. So go check out my TikTok. (laughs) Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. The cover art and logos for this podcast were designed by Brady Burns. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.